Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk. Discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Jane Goodall first found fame in the early 1960s, capturing the public's hearts with her work studying chimpanzees in Tanzania. Since then, she spent almost half a century leading groundbreaking conservation efforts through the Jane Goodall Institute. She seeded the future with like-minded souls through the Roots and Shoots educational programs for young people, spanning over 60 countries. Now she's contributed to a new comic book, Stories to Save the World, bringing together a diverse team of 300 leading environmentalists, authors, filmmakers and musicians to tell stories that address the climate crisis. I spoke to her earlier this week and began by asking Jane about the comic strip and how it was inspired by a real story from her educational initiative. Actually, it's one of my favourite Roots and Chute stories and it was the very first group of young people who formed a Roots and Shoots group in Goma, in the, that's the eastern part of the DRC, an area where all the conflict arises over, uh, you know, the precious minerals that are there, like coltan. So it's quite a dangerous place. Anyhow, this little group of children, they were about 10 years old, they learned that a certain hill, which they could see, had once been a sacred hill covered in forest, but the forest had virtually gone. So they went to their, their, you know, the guy in charge of Roots and Shoots and said, that's what we want to do for our project. We want to put the forest back. Well, it was clearly a very difficult task because the, the island, the um, hill was much bigger than they thought. But anyway, he didn't want to damp their enthusiasm. So... <clears throat> He got a forester friend to donate some little saplings, about 15 children. And uh, <clears throat> he had to go to the militia that was resident at the time to get permission. So the the colonel said, well, it seems a stupid idea, but I suppose there's no harm in it. But we'll have to send soldiers with you to make sure you're doing what you say you're doing. So now you imagine these 15 little children clutching their, their little trowels and their saplings, and four great big Congolese soldiers with AK-47s. They get to the hill, and it's much further than they thought. And it, it looks pretty hopeless, but anyway, they're going to try. So they start trying to dig. Well, it, the ground is very hard. 
And after about 15 minutes, one of the youngest children, a little girl, she starts to cry because she can't make the hole. And soon after that, one of the four soldiers leans his gun against a tree and goes to help her. Within the next 15 minutes, all the soldiers have laid aside their guns and they're all working with the children to plant the trees. And for me, this is so symbolic of what Roots and Shoots is all about. It's tackling projects, it's working together, it's it's blurring the line between young and old, between rich and poor, and between people of different cultures, nationalities and religions. It's also uh, telling stories of triumph over despair. And I wonder how important you think that is, particularly to engage young people in uh, the environment and in climate crisis, because if it's constantly presented as a disaster and and there's no sense that, you know, each and every one of us can, can make a difference, even if it's minimal, then I suppose you sort of get people feeling apathetic and shrugging their shoulders and going, we're all doomed. That's my big moan, that the media spends so much time on the doom and the gloom. And yes, we do need to know about it. And it is doomy and gloomy. But doomy, is that a word? I don't think so. I've invented one. It'll do. (laughs) Doomy and gloomy. And so people give up. And the reason I started the Roots and Shoots program in 1991 was because I was meeting young people, particularly high school and university, all around the world. By then I was traveling all around the world, lecturing and talking about our problems and what we can do about them. And these young people were either depressed, uh, sometimes very depressed or angry, but mostly just apathetic. Well, it doesn't matter what we do. They didn't seem to care. And when I began talking to them, they all said more or less the same. Well, you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, We've not only compromised their future, we've been stealing their future, probably ever since the Industrial Revolution. But was it true there was nothing that could be done? No. That's how Roots and Shoots began, with a little group of 12 high school students in Tanzania who were worried not just about the environment, not just the treatment of animals, not just the problems facing people, but between them, They encompassed everything that's wrong with society, everything that's wrong with the way we treat the planet. And that's something I learned in the rainforest, that everything is interconnected. So right from the beginning, Roots and Shoots was a a ground-up program. So the young people choose, they choose their projects. Uh, If they're very small, because we're now in kindergarten as well as university and everything in between. So the very young ones need, obviously, guidance. But basically, it's about choosing your projects. But between you as a group, you choose a project to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. And it's now, as you know, it's over 65 countries and growing all the time. We're always hearing about new groups. We talked about the hope. But we have to we have to touch on the despair as well, insofar as you've said before that you've seen horrendous 
change uh, on the planet uh, throughout your lifetime, even here at home in the UK. You've said that you're excited when an insect actually comes into your house. So how difficult is it for you personally to balance, you know, a degree of optimism for the future that keeps you engaged with the work that you do and inspiring people young and old, but also a, a sense, you know, I suppose you have to maintain a sense of outrage as well as uh, about what's happened. Yes, it's a sense of outrage, which I choose not to vent in an angry way, but it's what keeps me going. And the way I think that that we need change, it has to be change from within. I mean, yes, you can make laws and regulations. (laughs) You know how easy it is to get around those for some people. So, but if you change from within then that's different. And how do you get somebody, how do you reach their heart? According to me, telling stories. And that's why this comic book is a very important book. And even though I said it's not geared for small children, the stories can be read to them uh, because the stories are stories Mm. for everyone. And speaking of of rules and regulations, obviously last year we had the uh, all-important, much-heralded COP26. When you see gatherings like that, you know, gatherings of global leaders, uh, you know, and all the delegates and everybody flooding into Glasgow, does it give you a sense that that these issues are being taken seriously now? Or does it seem to you, as you've just said, that these are more rules and regulations that, that, that won't change anything unless there's actually seismic change within each and every one of us in terms of our relationship with the environment. Yes. I mean, if if every government country that was there at COP26 and every NGO and every corporation, if they all followed through on the, the, the commitments that were made, then COP26 would have been a huge success. But already we've seen examples of organizations that do not live up to their commitments, you know, new coal stations in in China and Australia and places like that, coal mines, I mean. But, you know, for me, hope is tied with action. So I see it now as like, imagine we're at the start of a long, dark tunnel. And right at the end of that tunnel is a little star shining. That's hope. But we don't just sit at the beginning of the tunnel and hope the star will come to us. No, we've got to guard our loins, as the Bible says. I love that expression. And we've got to crawl under, climb over, work our way around all the obstacles that lie between us and that little star. And the obstacles are daunting. Their climate change, their loss of biodiversity, their corruption, their poverty, their unsustainable lifestyles, and so on and so on. And if it was just one person, you would feel, well, give up. But it's not. There are more and more and more people around the world. And as you say, the numbers of people that came to COP26 was a sign that this awareness is growing, that there are these problems. And young people are so prepared to fight those problems. They, they're full of energy and commitment. And we just have to help them to understand the problems and empower them to take action. And we see what's happening all around the world. Do you think it's helpful uh, when, you know, we sort of, 
iconify, is that a word, um, certain figures. You know, I mean, you and David Attenborough are kind of iconic figures in, in the conservation movement and in terms of climate change and, and uh, you know, saving the world, literally. And then you have, uh, you know, and you're of a certain uh, generation. And then you have, you know, Greta Thunberg, the, the, the new voice, the young voice. Um, does that in any way change things or, or is it actually a, a backward step in terms of the fact that, as you just said, no single person is going to change anything? Well, I think, you know, in some cases, those figures you talk about um, give people hope because there's something that a young person can, uh, you know, well, if she can do it, if he can do it, I can do it. That's the message of Roots and Shoots, that every single person makes an impact every single day. And we choose what sort of impact we make. And so what do you think when you see, you know, tiny little Greta Thunberg stand up at those gatherings um, and speak to world leaders on behalf of the planet, this one small little voice? Well, she's very brave to stand up and do that. Um, she doesn't take exactly the same route as me. A lot of our roots and shoots join her demonstrations. Uh, we're more about action and storytelling. Uh, I don't know. I, I've never found out how, in fact, Greta does influence a, a CEO of a big company that's doing things wrong. I don't know. Sometimes they say that they're moved and they'll change, and they don't. So, so you know are you saying that 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 sort of confrontational uh, approach uh, is not necessarily a helpful one no i'm saying it's not my approach but i think we're in such dire straits right now that we need probably both we need the anger we need people like greta to be confrontational but we also need a way of reaching the heart through telling stories. And again, that's why this book is so important, because on every page it's telling a story. Jane Goodall, I want to go back to the beginning of your career. You you weren't formally trained as a scientist when you arrived at the Gombe uh, National Park. Um, what? How did you end up there, first of all? Well, my dream from age 10 was to live with wild animals in Africa. And as we had very little money, uh, was at that time the World War II was raging. Africa was far away. We didn't know really much about it. And so everybody laughed at me, Jane, why don't you dream about something you can achieve? Except my mother. And what she said is what the message I take to young people all around the world, particularly those in disadvantaged communities, if you really want something like this, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And then if you don't give up, maybe you find a way. So, you know, the way I got there, I left school. We didn't have money for university. I got a job in London just as a, a secretary. I, we had enough money for a little secretarial course, but pretty boring. Invitation to Kenya by a school friend worked as a waitress to save up enough money to get to Africa. And then it all happened it, like it was meant. I met Louis Leakey. I heard about him, went to see him. And he offered me a job at the Natural History Museum. He was curator. Why? Because two days before I met him, 
his secretary had left. He needed a secretary. So that boring old secretarial training, you see how things sometimes work in the most strange ways. And then there I am in the museum, surrounded by people who can answer all my questions. And eventually he asked if I was prepared to go and study chimpanzees, not just any animal, but the one most like us. So that's how it happened. And later he made me get a PhD, even though I didn't have an undergraduate degree. And did your lack of of scientific background, do you think in a way give you advantages uh, when you did get that job to go and observe uh, chimpanzees? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Because at the time, as Leakey knew, the, the way that scientists were thinking about animals was very reductionist. And if I'd been to college, would it have changed me? I sort of, I don't really think so. You know, my childhood teacher who taught me that animals actually are sentient beings with personalities, minds and emotions, all things denied by science back then. Um, That teacher was my dog, Rusty. And of course, the chimpanzees just amplified that. To be told when I got to Cambridge that I shouldn't have named the chimpanzees, I should have numbered them. And I couldn't talk about their personalities, which are so vivid like ours, or their minds, their intellect, which, of course, is phenomenal. And certainly not their emotions, you know, loving and hating and and, uh, feelings of hope and despair. Those are unique to us. But I knew it wasn't true. So, again, I wasn't confrontational. I didn't argue with the professors. I just quietly went on writing things up the way I believed them to be. And then the National Geographic sent uh, my first husband, Hugo van Lauwek. I married him soon after. And he took film. Well, when the scientists saw this film, what could they do? They had to believe that what I said was true. And I was really lucky in that my supervisor was one of the top three ethologists in the world, Professor Robert Hind. My sternest critic when I first got to Cambridge, he had me more or less, well, almost in tears, but angry at what he said. But then he came to Gombe and he saw the chimps and he actually wrote to me after two weeks and said, Jane, I learned more in those two weeks about animal behavior than in all the rest of my life. Did it teach you a lot about human beings, seeing uh, the the emotional impulses uh, that we have in what what, what is a, a much more uh, or a much less evolved creature, if you will? Did it make you understand, you know, I mean, as you said, you know, the rage and anger, the irrationality um, of chimp behavior in, 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 in some ways also, you know, shines a spotlight on our own worst impulses, doesn't it? Well, as far as the chimps are concerned, you know, their aggressive impulses are very, very apt for the situation they're in. You know, they're mad at that male because he's mated with a female that they are claiming as their own during her period of receptivity. But I think, you know, if you think about the differences, it's pretty clear that uh, chimpanzees and humans share an aggressive impulse. But only we, I believe, are capable of true evil, because 
a chimp will react to the immediate situation. But we can sit and in cold blood plan the torture of millions of people. Take the Holocaust, take some of what's happening around the world today. But at the same time, as we can be worse, we can be better. A chimp will automatically leap to the defense of a weaker member. They can be truly altruistic. But only we can be altruistic, knowing full well that our act may actually harm us. But we do it anyway. Do you think that we've become detached from certain aspects of of human personality characteristics that, that that actually would see us in better stead, particularly at this very difficult period uh, in our lives, in the in the future of the planet? Yes, I do, and you know, it's all because. Uh, young people are growing up and they're spending far more time uh, on social media, video games, continually with this little thing in their hand. Even if they're sitting on the same bus, they're texting back and forth and not talking to each other. And all of this is making us divorced from the natural world. And people forget that we actually not only a part of the natural world, like every breath of air we take, even in the middle of a city, is dependent on the natural world. We depend on the natural world. And as we are destroying it through climate change and loss of biodiversity, we're destroying our own future. So it's really important that everyone understands we need to get together to protect our planet before it's too late. As you've described, you know, you were a a young girl with a huge enthusiasm for studying the animal world. That's what you wanted to do. It was a dream. It wasn't necessarily one that other people thought you could realize. And then came this burst of success, global exposure after the film was made of of, of your work with uh, the chimpanzees. And, And there was press coverage at the time of scientists sort of saying, you know, dismissive things like she's only getting this credit because she's a cover girl and she's got lovely legs. Um, Did it bother you at the time? How did you deal with it? And how did you deal with being catapulted to fame, which I imagine was not a very comfortable place for, for, for you with the interest that you've described? No, well, first of all, the legs business, you know, it was a different world back then. We didn't think in the terms that young people would think today if they were told you're only famous because you've got nice legs. Um, I sort of thought, well, if if my legs have given me the money to study the chimpanzees, thank you, legs. It was, <laughs> you know, and they were. I mean, I've seen the recent film, Jane. I thought, my goodness, I did have nice legs, you know. Um, so how I dealt with it was, well, I wasn't really caring. All I cared about was getting back to study the chimps. And the fame part of it was awful. I mean, I tried to hide from it. I tried to go around with dark glasses and my hair down, and people were still recognizing me. And for a long time, I hid from the press. I didn't want to talk to them. And then I suddenly realized, I don't know what made me, it hit me like this, I need to make use of this. If I want to really help the chimpanzees and the forests, I need to make use of this thing that's happened to me through no wish of my own. So how have you dealt with it? Are there two Janes? Oh, yes. That's the one talking to you now, sitting here at home. 
um, where I've been grounded for the whole pandemic because my team won't let me travel yet. They say, Jane, we want you alive, but, you know, long COVID can permanently damage your brain. They say, well, you know, you've been vaccinated, but you can still get long COVID. Omicron can lead to some kind of long. And um, so sitting here in the house I grew up in, I'm just me. But then there's the iconic Jane out there. I have to try and live up to that Jane, but I do my best to make use of her. Which one of them would you say is the most tenacious and resilient? Because I imagine, you know, I mean, we we can laugh away the lovely legs and the dismissal because you didn't have a degree and, and all of those things. But at the same time, you know, they are hurtful and they are demeaning. And clearly you had the wherewithal, maybe just as you've said, because you were so passionate about what you were doing to 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 kind of dismiss those things and, and plough ahead. What do you think gave you that that, that sense of courage and, and of, of your own uh, capabilities? Well, I think it was the way I was brought up. I mentioned my mother and the entire family was like that. They were supportive. They were ahead of their time and, you know, doing jobs that women didn't do. Like my aunt was a qualified physiotherapist from Guy's Hospital uh, at a time when most women didn't achieve positions like that. My grandmother was equally amazing. And so I, you know, I had a family that supported. So if the rest of the world said things that, well, they don't really matter, do they? As long as I can carry on and do what I think I'm here to do. Tell me about the beech tree that you can probably see through your window. I'm not sure if you can see it from yes, that room. The end branches of beech right there. Uh, I spent hours and hours up beech and I felt closer to the birds and the sky and the insects. Lots of insects, many more birds back then. I took my homework up there, I took my problems up there. And now, as I'm stuck here with my little half bit of toast and a bit of cheese and a little bit of food, and I have a robin and a blackbird, and they come every day and they listen to me singing to them. And sometimes they back, oh, nonsense, you know, just nonsense. Or sometimes things like, uh, say, ye who borrow love's witching spell, things that I remember. And they brought their babies in the spring and then now I think the robins have definitely mated and I think the blackbirds have as well but hopefully by the time they have their babies I'll be back on the road Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup There'll be more from the podcast next week so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.